Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The philosophy of sex. Welcome to the philosophy of sex. Long play. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Today, we're talking about porn. According to Pornhub data, which is surprisingly comprehensive, Australia ranks seventh in the world for porn consumption on the popular platform. With data from other sources suggesting the average age of first consumption of porn is nine, it's easy to see why porn use has become a contentious issue. Irrespective of whether you think watching porn is for heathens or you're spending hours in front of your computer watching porn a day, its mass appeal is undeniable. So what gives porn its allure? What makes watching specific videos so enticing? In light of what porn has the potential to reveal about human nature, can porn ever be merely entertainment? Today, to help us explore what our porn use says about us as individuals and as a culture more generally, is Giorgio Tricarico. Giorgio is a clinical psychologist and a Jungian analyst, and a member of the International Association for Analytical Psychology. He has worked with adult patients since 1998 in Italy and Helsinki, and he's the author of Lost Goddesses, a kaleidoscope on porn. In the book, Giorgio argues porn is a complex symbol of our current world and a shining example of Jung's idea of the shadow of the Western culture. While many books essentially show porn's negative sides and talk about the risks of addiction and the dangers of damaging relationship between men and women and so on, Giorgio's work focuses on porn as a phenomenon of our times, exploring its many colours and trying to capture its inner logic and essence. And despite its pervasive ubiquity on the internet and in our lives, porn is seldom discussed with psychoanalysts or even between lovers and friends. In parallel with its growing presence, the last 40 years have witnessed a significant growth of publications about porn. In the episode, Giorgio and I discuss the social ideas that enabled the proliferation of mass internet porn what our preferences and proclivities say about our psyches, and what Carl Jung's idea of shadow has to contribute here. We also discuss what divinity and porn have in common, and the deeper layers of human experience that could be driving porn use. Giorgio presents a unique take on porn that moves away from the conventionally boring black and white arguments that porn use has become the subject of. Enjoy our conversation. In the book, you speak about the difference between porn and pornography, and obviously etymology is something that's really important to you, which I love. Describe what porn is in the book. Okay, well, 
I like etymology a lot because it allows some uh, imaginal activity. Many times we use words without knowing what they really mean uh, in their etymological sense. And sometimes in the therapy, I, I speak with patients about uh, some etymology of the words that we use because they open up some deeper meaning of things. Uh, the same with porn. I mean, the literature about porn speaks of pornography all the time in English, but I think also in Italian, uh, which is my, my language. Uh, I like to stick to etymology and pornography, the graphy part means, uh, refers to writing because that word was used in referral to books, especially written in the 19th century that they were talking about prostitutes or about sexuality in a kind of transgressive way for the time. And uh, since porn, uh, the word comes from porne, which is a Greek word for prostitute, writing about prostitute was, uh, uh, was the meaning of pornography. But we are mostly dealing, in my book, I'm mostly dealing with images, may they be pictures or videos, so nothing written, and uh, I stick to the word porn instead. <laughs> I uh, I try to make some re- to make some reflections about mass porn, which we can think of it as starting from uh, the seventies, basically of last century. But porn uh, pictures and um, films existed basically since the camera and uh, movie theater were invented. So actually, there are some more hundred years of uh, history of porn pictures and videos, but they were not mass porn. They were available for a very few amount of people. So mass porn, we can say that it starts in 1969 or 1970 when first Denmark and then the US uh, made it legal to produce and distribute porn material. So my book is uh, very focused on that period of time, the last 50 years, basically. Also, my book is very limited because mostly I have in mind the porn intended for men mm. and for heterosexual men, which is nowadays uh, still the mainstream porn, but uh, it's a portion of the whole picture. There are other, uh, other sectors, so to say, that I didn't, I didn't uh, explore. Mm. Well, I mean, it's as you say, it's what a lot of mainstream porn caters for. It's the view that mainstream porn caters for in a lot of senses. So it makes sense that that, that is where you would place the majority of your focus. Yes. Could you sort of take us through what motivated you to write about pornography? I mean, as a Jungian analyst, it's not necessarily a topic you hear discussed a lot in the community. So why did you feel that it was important to actually explore pornography or porn, I should say? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, as you say, uh, there's actually in Jungian literature, there is really almost nothing. I just found one paper by James Hillman, which is one of the most prominent Jungians, but nothing else. And uh, in, in psychoanalytic uh, literature, porn uh, is uh, always addressed uh, in, in, in its pathological sides, addiction, most of all, uh, perversions. Uh, you know, the, 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 there are many words describing uh, uh, the pathological side, say, of uh, being interested in porn. I thought that it was missing completely some analysis of the phenomenon in itself, although in other fields like 
philosophy uh, and sociology, uh, there were many works about uh, porn. Uh, And of course, feminism, uh, feminist literature. So uh, in other fields, there was a lot. In in analytical psychology, which is Jungian uh, theory, let's say, almost nothing. And uh, I got uh, interested in that, uh, and I wanted to to delve into this phenomenon a bit because it seems to me that it's a, a very present and omnipresent, I would say, uh, phenomenon. It's funny how it's one of the most common objects nowadays in the, in, in our society. I call it an object. I mean that everyone can access it uh, through tablets, mobile phones, uh, computers, mm. and and. So the phenomenon was important, and, and it seemed to me that there was nothing about it. So I got uh, I got interested into it. First of all, I read many many books about it, and uh, and as a child born in 1970, actually, uh, porn was an object in my life too. First in magazines, and then in VHS, and, and then in DVDs, and now in the web. So it's been an object in my life too, and. Uh, and actually, I, I must say that after the book was released for three years, uh, uh, it was as if it was not re- published. <laughs> Nobody paid attention to it. Mm. So actually, I'm very grateful that you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, as as we kind of spoke about on the, the phone yesterday before before we were chatting today, I think for me... I've had lots of questions about why I've not chosen to cover porn on the show up until this point. And I think I've I've often found the arguments for or against it exactly that for or against it, but not necessarily anything looking at, as you say, the underlying phenomenon of why is this something that's become so utterly pervasive and so contested in our culture, across cultures as well. And so that was what interested me to see someone applying it, a, a Jungian lens to it, but approaching it from as a, a social phenomenon that we can try and understand through these different methods, which kind of leads me to where I wanted to dive into first, which is to talk about the relationship between porn and culture and what cultural aspects have sort of given rise to the proliferation of porn in the way that we've seen. The way you talk about particularly Western culture's relationship with imagery is really, really interesting to me. So can you talk us through what the West's relationship to imagery says or reveals about why porn has become so prevalent in our culture, despite the fact that we don't talk about the fact that it's as prevalent as it is often? (laughs) Uh, One of the authors uh, that interested me a lot uh, uh, in the last uh, 15 years is a, a forgotten philosopher called Günther Anders. I wonder if you knew about him or not. I hadn't heard uh, of him before the book, no. Hmm. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting because uh, uh, this author, uh, has, uh, to my knowledge uh, until today, has not been translated into English. Mm. Uh, but I got uh, the possibility to read uh, his major work and also many other works in Italian because they were translated. And this was writing in German. This author has dedicated uh, uh, many, many reflections to um, the society of technology, which is basically 
uh, where we have got to uh, in millennia of evolution. So he brings about a, a very careful critique of the society of technology. And uh, I've been reading uh, extensively Günther Anders, and I was very puzzled that there was no translation in English of his works. So one element in my book was also to retrieve his thoughts into, uh, into the English community, so to say, academic community. Uh, I don't know, maybe somebody else has done it already, and, and I don't know. I found just some translations in the, in the internet, but they were not official translations of his works. Yeah. So why I start from Anders? Because uh, Anders was uh, dealing uh, in the first, uh, first volume of his work, I think it was written right after the Second World War, he was dealing the phenomen with the phenomenon of TV and radio programs. In his reflections, the, the, it's so clear how the word has been re relentlessly transformed into its image and then delivered uh, at home, just like gas or electricity, at that time through TV. And uh, he was very concerned about... Uh, the fact that we were more and more experiencing the words, the word through images and not through the real experience. Mm. There were a lot of uh, consequences psychologically, emotionally, in this new relationship with the word, with the image of the word. And Anders uh, calls this image phantom, meaning that it's half present and half absent, so to say. When think when you when you watch a sport event on, on a TV, for example, or nowadays in the internet, uh, you're not really in front of the real game which is going on because you see the image of it. It's just on the screen. So on one hand, it's present because you see the game. On the other hand, it's not present in front of you really because you just experience its image. And uh, our relationship with images so has become really, really pervasive and dominant uh, in, in the last uh, 60, 70 years. But Anders did not see the, the World Wide Web. I really wonder what he would have yeah. thought now, because really now we are mostly experiencing the images of the world and not the real world. Actually, there is no need to go out there mm. almost. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm talking to you in Australia from Helsinki, yeah. Finland. I see your image. You're <laughs> present in my consultation room because I'm sitting here. But actually, you're not here. And uh, this kind of um, um, ambiguity in our experience is, uh, is very interesting. And porn, of course, is one of the thousands of examples where we experience something through the image and not through the real experience. Porn from the very beginning was images, pictures, films, and, and now clips. And the reflections about how this way of experiencing the world is changing our psyche, I think it's still uh, not so much explored, let's say. Mm. Well, I think to explore the reality of that would be quite confronting. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I mean, in, in the book you say, we're supplied images with the world mostly through its images pre-prepared, literally previously arranged for us. And you think of the way porn has become 
categorized and the way that it's presented to people now through these sort of huge platforms. And I think a lot of people underestimate what big businesses a lot of these porn companies are. Mm. It's it's pretty interesting to track sort of the lineage of that as beginning with TV and radio. It's kind of depressing, really, <laughs> that we <laughs> yeah. weren't able to catch sight of that and the impact that it might, as you say, have on our psyches. And it's amazing how uh, apparently porn evokes immediately transgression and something very, you know, out of the norms. Is there anything less transgressive than a supermarket in our world? <laughs> I mean, just going to the shelves and choosing something. Basically, uh, in its essence, porn is just like browsing uh, Amazon or whatever. Mm. And I think this would be a good a good point for you to describe what a pornscape is. Yeah, I found this word, uh, uh, pornscape, uh, as, uh, as a word describing the the landscape that has been created in the net uh, about porn. I don't know how many sites are uh, in, in, the, in the web about porn, but I think they, they can be hundreds of thousands probably around the world. But the business is huge because uh, it's really uh, reachable with a click from any device and you can access this pornscape uh, so easily. And uh, this has been a change, of course, in the accessibility of porn material. I tried to outline a little bit of the history uh, of porn uh, through time. I, I started the book telling that porn is a, is a technological object because it owes its own existence to technological devices like cameras and uh, video cameras and so on. So from the very start, uh, uh, Porn and technology go, go hand in hand, uh, and uh, every technological change, from pictures to movies in the movie theaters, from uh, movie theaters to VHS that you can see at home, uh, and DVDs then, and then now uh, clips in the web, uh, every technological change has changed the, the accessibility that we can have of porn, how easy it is to get in touch, and of course it has changed the dimension of the whole landscape that we can access. So the pornscape is, is this huge landscape. And there's basically everything in the shelves of this huge supermarket that you can find. But it's very tricky because at the same time, uh, following Gunther's, Gunther Anders' reflections, uh, it was obvious to me that we are taught to desire uh, very much in this technological and consumeristic world because consumerism and technology, they go also hand in hand. Mm. It's a catalog of desires. In a way, anything can be represented there, but it's also something that teaches us what, what to desire and how. Mm. But since it's through a technological product uh, and its images, there are many psychological consequences into it. One of, one of them I have most in mind is that uh, when you use porn, then you get used to experience sex visually mm. and it's interesting because yeah the real sexual experience should involve all the senses yeah and actually other senses can be even more important than sight mm. uh, touching or smelling or tasting which are the, uh, the the most ancient senses by the way they they should have a much more importance in the in the real sexual activity but we get used to to sight and, and hearing as the dominant senses mm. when we have 
uh, porn experiences through images. I want to jump into sort of the pornification of society and the way you break that down yeah. in a book. But but before we do that, I think it would be great to just get you to unpack a little bit more about that relationship between consumerism and porn and the kind of cyclical nature of that. I think you do a really wonderful job of of breaking that down in the book and talking about how that has emerged as a result of technology. As you say, they're very inextricably linked. So if you could talk about the relationship between sort of technology, consumerism, and porn a little bit more, that would be great. Yes. So if we think that porn is a technological object, uh, and it's uh, as a technological object, it, it emerges in the 19th century, but then it develops in the 20th century. So the 20th century is a very accelerated century where in every field, technology and consumerism and capitalism they entwine with each other mm. and create the, the current world we live in, where these dimensions are all connected. So we live in a, we live in a world where everything is an object and everything is a product, and uh, there is always a market for that, and products actually need to be needed by us in order to be produced more. Mm. This is a, the the perspective that Günther Anders has about our current world. So porn is just an object among millions of others. And uh, we can choose what kind of porn we want. We consume its image, probably for masturbation, most of all. Any of the platforms, they are for free and they offer samples. The hope is that maybe you then will subscribe paying some money to the original producer. Anyway, we are invited and we are seduced by objects in order to be consumed. And uh, I see porn just as any other object. Mm. And actually, uh, since the way through uh, which objects can uh, be noted and uh, seen by us is seduction, the whole 20th century so a growing uh, seductive marketing uh, and advertisement industry mm. because the need was to seduce the consumer in order to consume some product. For this reason, products need to be like sirens singing at our ears <laughs> and tempting us in order to be noticed and to be bought among billions of other objects. It's very interesting how Anders subverse the, the idea that we are choosing objects. Actually, objects are choosing us or they're trying to seduce us so that we choose them. Uh, under this perspective, uh, many, many other objects are using sexual seductiveness as the way to be noticed. And they are particularly, uh, let's say, unfair in doing that. Porn, as an object, instead, at least, advertise itself through sexuality. And it's uh, maybe one of the very few that uses sexual seduction for seducing us towards sex. Because usually sexual seduction is used to seduce us to buy a, a wristwatch uh, uh, or a, a, an insurance company or yeah. <laughs> whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Under this concern, sex is uh, sorry, porn is more 
honest than other objects. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, and I mean, you you talk about the pornification of society a lot in the book, which you know I think it would be relatively hard to dispute that reality. Like you say, in advertising, we see plenty of sexualization. I think people are trying to limit that now, but it's still very much present in other ways. Do you think porn is solely responsible for that pornification? Or do you think there's other factors at play? Uh, I definitely think that other fa- factors are at play. The The word itself, pornification, I, I found it in a, in a book by an American author called Pamela Paul. Mm. Uh, she wrote a book in 2005, if I recall right, uh, about the pornification of the society. And she was pointing out how porn imagery was uh, infecting or contaminating many other uh, realms, like uh, music videos or fashion or advertisement. And and that's obviously very clear. I mean, uh, porn imagery has spread in all these fields. And I would say that also Instagram or Facebook uh, people themselves they present to the others mm-hmm. in a very sexual way usually yeah. and uh, porn has definitely shaped also the way that pictures are uh, taken self selfies are taken and put in in all these social networks but unfortunately uh, the reality is that porn is not responsible for this bonification as uh, as a phenomenon in its globality mm. uh, as i was saying before industry and and the need to produce needs in the consumers started from the end of the eight, of the 19th century to use the best form of seduction which is the sexual seduction as a scaffolding for advertisement yeah and this has been going on for decades obviously it was according to the laws of the moment about what was obscene or not or what was allowed, or what was too sexual. But from decade to decade, the the limits and the laws about what was uh, licit to show changed. And more and more, it was possible to have more sexual images, advertising whatever. If you take advertisements from the 50s or 60s uh, about whatever object, a car, they start to be openly sexual. They, they were using pinups these uh, beautiful uh, women of the 50s to to advertise. And of course, why women? I mean, we are in a patriarchal world uh, since millennia. And of course, the sexual seduction uh, is uh, uh, men, uh, men's perspective on it. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. obviously, women's body was the best uh, seductive uh, uh, example of uh, sexual seduction and so that was the first one to be used to advertisement but this started really early very early and much before porn was legal yeah then we get to the 60s we get to a lot of social changes uh there was a, a feminist movement or anti-racial movements and you know i can't summarize uh, how in the Western world the 60s represented a moment of big change in, in uh, uh, values and norms. 
And this opened up also the way to porn to become more accepted and acceptable. And porn finally became a legal object in the 70s. And then being an object among many and uh, being present in the world, obviously then it, let's say, influenced back the advertisement industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, the pornification of the world is just the last drop of a process uh, which started before with the seductiveness of the commodities. That, that, that was the scaffolding of this. So, yes, we can worry about uh, how a- everything has become pornified, but I think that we should worry much more about the whole picture, which includes capitalism and consumerism. Uh, recently read a beautiful book by Noam Chomsky uh, together with the Waterstone and they are having lessons in America. Uh, I think the book is called The Consequences of Capitalism. And I really think that we should uh, every time consider that that's the big umbrella and frame, yes, where everything else then uh, happens. So when we try to change some elements of it, we should also try to change the whole frame. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, you in the book you talk about um, sort of the the no limit approach that capitalism um, and sort of subsequently neoliberalism and ideas like that that have emerged in more modern times has impacted and further proliferated sort of the more harmful consumption of um, porn. I have a quote from you here that I really loved, which was. The codexes and schema of men's role in porn have not changed much since the very beginnings of mass porn. The male performer basically had back then and has today just to endure erection, to penetrate on a continuum from gently to brutally, and to ejaculate. Nothing transgressive, no limits to trespass, or even repress at all. Male sexuality in porn is as transgressive as a tax form to be filled in. And you talk about sort of the the perfect... the the male porn actor being the perfect caricature of the patriarchal idiot. And, you know, as a woman, I just had to smile and laugh at that because of how true it feels. But I think it's interesting there how you're talking about how these sort of underlying social frameworks have created and given rise to to space for that. But I wanted to ask you sort of how conscious do you think porn companies are of that psyche that a lot of men in particular, as that's what you're focusing on the book, have? Or do you think it's sort of just a natural self-fulfilling thing, all of these different factors working together that allow have allowed porn companies to kind of proliferate without much effort? Yeah, I'm afraid uh, I'm afraid is the second option. <laughs> uh, yes. <clears throat> uh, I had the chance to talk to a porn actress. I was a uh, very, very surprised how she hadn't any clue of anything of what I was talking about in the book. And when she was mentioning also the environment around her, I got the idea that nobody has a clue what what is going on on a deeper level. It seems to me that in the environment of porn, actors and actresses and probably producers and companies, they have really no uh, awareness of so many dimensions of what what they are performing and what they, what is going on if i can be a little bit provocative uh, here mm-hmm. why for example we accept in every field 
very normally that a company should grow every year. There's no doubt for people that if you have worked uh, 100 this year, next year should be 110. Mm. Mm, it's the most normal thing for everyone. Uh, I found myself reflecting about that because I chose consciously, for example, that I work with patients a limited amount of hours every week. And I set for myself a limit and I won't go over that. Although I have many requests for with new patients needing to come and I would have time. But I thought, okay, for example, Friday, I don't work. And this is why we are meeting on Friday with you. Uh, but many people would, would ask me, but why, why don't you work more? Why don't you earn more? Actually, you're always poor. You're always without money. Why don't you work more? Uh, <laughs> uh, which is the truth. And okay. But can we ask the opposite? Why should we grow every year? I, I call this logic in my book, the logic of cancer. Mm. Uh, <laughs> infinite grow. But then in the end, you die. I mean, the, the cancer pro provokes the death of the, of the body where it's developing. So it's, it's a very, very stupid logic. But it's a no-limit logic. So this is real in every field of our current world. It's real in econ economy, and we should always grow. Uh, every gross index in every country should grow. Otherwise, it's a tragedy. Uh, it's it's uh, true in uh, technology, because technology develops with a logic that is everything that can be done must be done. If we are able to do something, we'll do it. And then let's mm -hmm. see what happens. Because technology has become some kind of a, a amoral field that develops and has just the goal to expand the possibilities to develop more mm. without any other specific goal. I'm not saying it. There's a philosopher who's saying it, an Italian philosopher called Emanuele Severino, which is also not probably known outside Italy much. Uh, but he was clearly saying that uh, the only goal the only aim of technology is to expand uh, its possibility to reach goals. Mm, yeah. It's a very unlimited and not a specific goal to, to be able to reach more goals. So technology is like that. Medicine is aimed by the same thing, the no limit mentality. Psychotherapy also, like everything, is, is affected by this no limits mentality. There's tons of books which sell so much more than my book, <laughs> which are usually titled like 10 Steps to be Happy or Five Things to be... And isn't that no limits mentality? Basically, the book tells you that you can be happy. It's just... Uh, you, you can. You always can. There's, it, there's no limit. But sometimes it's true, actually, most of the time. So porn is just, once again, the same as everything else in our Western world. And no limits mentality gets there too. So, but it's very interesting, like you were pointing out, that no limits burden is put on the on the shoulders of women, not of men, because actually men they don't trespass any limits, as you said in my quotation. In porn, they are doing the same thing since the very start. Yeah, yeah. Even the way you talk about how pervasive that logic is in terms of in porn, a woman's body physically being stretched and taken to its absolute maximum capacity, and then that perpetuating the cycle of 
well, once it's been stretched to the max, then what? What's the next thing that we can increase the capacity of or push further? And then that creating a self-fulfilling prophecy of wanting to dive into more and more sort of hardcore porn. And, you know, there is this phenomenon where you start watching porn and it might be something quite innocent and then it kind of can escalate quite quickly into something completely different as you get stuck in the spiral, which I think is an interesting point to drop in to start to talk about the shadow and what actually drives us when we're stuck in that cycle of moving into more and more hardcore material where we don't ever feel quite satiated. Can you talk about what the shadow is according to Jung? Obviously, there's a few varying interpretations of it. Jung was uh, often using images instead of concepts. If you read psychoanalytical books, Freud and all the new Freudians, they're much more precise in giving definitions and uh, creating concepts and in, a, in a more, let's say, rational way. Jung was often using images because he thought that uh, the complexity of the psyche was better captured by uh, something very similar to what the psyche usually uses. And psychic uses images many times and metaphors and uh, symbols. So something which is not a precise concept, but something evocative that evokes many things and maybe condensates many things. So when he speaks about the shadow, uh, he says that it's very natural that the psyche has a shadow thinking uh, with this metaphor that every uh, every object has a shadow when there is a light on it. So mm. every body projects a shadow. The shadow side of the psyche initially was referred to all those contents that because of the way we grow and we are socialized, they're not very acceptable in, uh, uh, in our consciousness. So they are somehow repressed, to use a Freudian terms, into a, a place where, where it's out of our sight. So the initial definition of Jung's uh, shadow is very similar to the initial definition of Freud unconscious, that all the things that are unacceptable and not uh, uh, not possible to embody, they, ha they have to be put there. So this, of course, uh, is connected so with, the, with the culture that a person is immersed in because if something is unacceptable, usually it's unacceptable for a culture, for a set of norms and values uh, that are valid in that moment. In the shadow, you find many things that are the negative side of your conscious personality and some of these are, are not uh, just uh, repressed because of the culture we are immersed in, but they are uh, considered somehow negative in itself, like destructiveness, possessiveness, or jealousy, or uh, many human elements, mm -hmm. uh, especially destructiveness, which are not very nice to, to look at. Mm. But if you dig in everyone, we can find some elements connected with that. We can think of a personal, individual level of the shadow, meaning that I live in a certain historical period, I live in a certain family, and some things are considered not acceptable, so they are put in the shadow, so I try to ignore them, or actually I come to ignore them. They are unconscious to me too. There are collective elements of the shadow, like a whole culture makes the same thing, so to say, and puts aside some elements, 
And then there are some uh, union terms, archetypal elements. And this is a very messy concept. I won't delve into that. <laughs> uh, it's one of probably the most known concepts about Jung. And it's uh, after after decades of studying Jung, I'm not sure what archetypes are. <laughs> for another episode. <laughs> yeah, for another episode. And and so there is an archetypal level. Let's let's say that there are some elements which are really connected to being human. Is kind of specific of our species, like destructiveness, unfortunately which are found in any, anyone and in any historical mm. moment. Okay, so porn definitely is a very interesting element that can reveal shadow as aspects. Some thousands of years of history of repression of sexuality, the body, the desire, the feminine, especially in the, in the Judaic Christian culture, these things have been put collectively in the shadow. They were evil. And it's very interesting how porn basically retrieves all these shadow elements because porn is about sex, body, desire, and feminine. Mm. Especially, I mean, heterosexual porn intended for men, I refer to Yeah, that. yeah. And I mean, the destructiveness that you talk about there in particular you can really see that in porn, right? I mean, obviously one of the major issues that people have with mainstream porn is the violence and the dehumanizing, particularly towards women and how that, when you have children on average beginning to consume porn at the age of nine, how that then goes on to influence the dynamics, the interpersonal dynamics between heteronormative people. So it does reveal a lot, as you say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. On on a range of different fronts. But I think that sort of dehumanizing element and how that relates to shadow is something that you break down really beautifully in in the book. So yeah, could you just speak to that a little bit more, I guess? This is one of the reasons why I wanted to write about porn and to delve into this topic, because it reveals a lot about the shadow of individuals, but also on the collective shadow. And uh Jung said that uh, every uh, work of introspection, every process of psychotherapy and analysis starts with meeting the shadow elements. Mm. Start with dismantling what he calls the persona, which is, uh, the, let's say, the mask that we come to build up uh, through our upbringing and uh, growing. So... We, we become pers a persona, which is actually the Latin word for mask. Uh, and so dismantling these roles and external, let's say, uh, image that we offer to the world and getting in touch with our shadow elements. So the sides of our psyche that we don't, sometimes we don't want to see, but these, these sides emerge. Uh, so that's the starting point of every psychotherapeutic process. So why not including uh, this on a collective level? We, if we want to reflect and possibly move forward also on a collective level, we have to delve into the shadow of our cultures. And uh, porn is a perfect field to delve in to meet many shadow elements of our culture. The point would be, as in psychotherapy, when you meet this element, the, uh, the point is to to overcome them, to integrate them, to move forward, to 
not just to you know give up and and take them as uh, uh, inexorable. Okay, they are like this. I'm like that. Mm. No, we try to do something with that. Yeah. So the first uh, part of the process is to confront these negative sides, so to say. And with porn is is tricky because on one hand, porn reveals shadows which are positive too. I tried to underline it in, in, the, in the chapter about the shadow that since, for example, the body and sexuality and uh, the feminine and desire, these elements have been put in the shadows. Well, these elements are not negative. Mm. So porn uh, reveals also these shadow aspects uh, in its positiveness. When we speak about sex positivity, I think that we are trying to retrieve these elements from the shadow and bring them into the consciousness, also collectively, uh, in their positive value. And porn, to some extent, uh, started, I think, in the 60s, late 60s and 70s, uh, retrieving these positive elements. Because, first of all, it was showing that women enjoy sex, which is something forbidden in the mainstream culture. A woman, a good woman, shouldn't be sexual. But actually in porn, women were shown with their own desires, with multiple partners, with uh, the the possibility to enjoy sexuality. That was a subversive element in the late 60s and early 70s. And actually it was a positive thing to take out of the shadow and bring back to the consciousness of the, the collective world. Like women are exactly like men and exactly like any other gender sexual. It's very nice to... Uh, to experience the what I called the pristine joy of the body, another element that has been repressed for centuries. You know, every desire was despicable, and uh, uh, you had to, you know, atone if you gave in to some desire. No, desire is positive too. So in porn, we find the pristine joy of the body. We find our desire multiplicity. Another definition I try to make in the book. Uh, uh, we desire many things. Porn is about multiple desires at the same time and the enjoyment of it, so to say. These elements are good, but then we detect also the destructiveness. We detect the patriarchy there. We detect, uh, uh, once again, the gaining of some form of identity by crushing another one. It's so miserable, of course, to find this still. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's very despairing for me. I mean, millennia of evolution of the spirits and we're still there yeah this is why i take issue with the idea or the assertion of porn as entertainment and what we have to do to remove the harmful element of porn is to educate people that it is a form of entertainment and not something that you should be bringing into your sexual encounters with a living, breathing human being. I mean, that assertion sounds completely idealistic to me that we could ask people to delineate between those two things, particularly when the consumption of that material has, for most people, been part of their lives for such a long period. I I take a similar issue with some forms of what is pitched as ethical pornography as well. I think there are elements there that influence us in quite um, subtle ways. And so to say that you can just compartmentalize those things, I don't know, but I'm not convinced that that's potentially as realistic as, as some people like to make out. And part of me wonders if that's really just another form of dissonance to say, well, if it's just entertainment, 
that's fine, we can live with that. Um, and we'll compartmentalize it in that way, as opposed to acknowledging the reality that, yes, it does reveal shadow elements. It does tell truths about why we have certain preferences and where those preferences come from. And I think in doing that, we actually miss quite an interesting opportunity, as you say, to to learn about ourselves that doesn't have to be a miserable, horrible experience. It can be quite a liberating and illuminating one. So just wondering sort of, what your thoughts on some of those assertions are around how we deal with the issue of pornography, whether we should see it as entertainment or how we should kind of understand it. I very much agree with what you say. Uh, considering it just entertainment sounds to me uh, as a way not to delve into all these nuances and uh, it resonates with me very much what you say. It's similar uh, to the assertion that I hear very often that technology is neutral, it's just the way we use it. Uh, I don't agree with this naive uh, assertion. Uh, Günther Anders was showing it very clearly how this is a very naive perspective on technology. Actually, he says that we, we should, we should uh, think how technology can use us, <laughs> not the other way. Yeah. Uh, really deeply reflect on how we are used by technology. But so with the same spirit, I don't think that we can just say that, oh, it's entertainment and uh, it's neutral, it depends uh, on on the user. No, no. I I really think that it's a very complex phenomenon, porn. Delving into porn and delving in all the nuances of it should be a way to gain more awareness on a lot of element about ourselves individually and about the culture we live in. If Jung says that this is the starting point of every process of self-knowledge, it means that getting in touch with the shadow elements should give us the possibility then to do something else with it. So the transformative element of meeting the shadow, let's say, is at the center here. So we shouldn't remain on the level that porn is just entertainment. We should go into this uh, complex object. We should get in touch with shadow elements of ourselves as consumers, but also of our society. And then we should try to transform something. It's the same thing we should do in in a therapeutic process. We don't just go to understand something of ourselves just for knowledge. Then it should transform us into something else. Mm. So we should do the same, I think, with porn. The, the more we go into it with this analytical mentality, the more we can try to transform something in us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is probably um, a fairly self-evident <laughs> question to ask, but why do you think individuals are often willing to unpack what their porn use is about their psyche and how it relates to their shadow. I mean, a couple examples that you give in the book is obviously admitting the existence of a multiplicity of desires in yourself is fine. It's great. It's wonderful to have lots of desires for yourself, but then to acknowledge that your partner has that same multiplicity can be uncomfortable and confronting and not something you want to deal with. Or how often the things that we seek reveal a weakness about ourselves. But beyond that, what do you feel makes people so uneasy about the idea of having to really confront why are we consuming the material that we choose to consume? 
it's always difficult to get in touch with our shadow elements. It's uh, a challenging task. Uh, many people, when they start therapy and analysis, they are often motivated by some suffering and they come because there is a problem to be solved. But when comes the moment in the therapy where you start getting in touch with these elements which are uncomfortable for yourself, uh, it's, it's hard to proceed on the therapy. And sometimes people even interrupt it. So it's never easy to get in touch with uh, areas of ourselves that we find problematic, uh, non-acceptable, not only by other people, but even by us. Porn can reveal many, many elements, and uh, it's a challenge to take them into account and to, uh, let's say, use them in a transformative way. You gave the example of a desire multiplicity. It's very normal to have multiple desires, but it's difficult to admit the consequences of it if we, if we really uh, integrate this element in us. It requires us to, a, a very big change in the frame we use for considering, for example, couple relationships. It's a big challenge and not everyone is willing to go through it and move forward. There are some people that also come to therapy, but basically uh, the main goal is adaptation to their life, is not transformation. It's not always transformation, the goal of the therapy. Uh, some people try to adapt to their life, which means to feel better where they are, not to transform themselves and move forward. So it's not always easy. And by the way, your question also allows me to say that in my personal uh, experience uh, as a therapist, it's so rare that people address to their use on porn openly. I guess that if you have patients who label themselves as addicted to porn, then obviously you talk about that because it's presented as a problem. But when there is not this situation, and there is, the, let's say, the normal use of porn of every almost everyone, mm. well, people never talk about it. Mm. And it's, uh, uh, it's unsettling when I try to ask something about it. I see, I see all the difficulties in opening up this. Mm. Which just shows you how deeply repressed or pushed into the shadow it is. I mean, that that says a lot in and of itself, yes. but it that seems like a pretty dangerous thing to me to have that because it can just run wild and it's very hard to put boundaries around it when it's so far repressed and we're not willing to deal with it or have, have conversations about it. So it's no surprise that we've ended up where we are, where we're now trying to reduce all of the harm that's resulted from it, but kind of fumbling through that and not really knowing how to how to address it effectively. Yes, and, and this uh, shows how right you were when you said that uh, you're, you're not happy in calling it just entertainment because, yeah, if it was only entertainment, why not speaking of it in the sessions? No. It's not only entertainment. If there are so many resistances to talk about that yeah. deeply, mm. mm, exactly. And there was there's a 
a quote that you give in the book that I I really loved that I think sort of speaks to the shallowness of the experience for some people. And I want to use this sort of as a segue to then begin talking about your ideas around sacredness and, and divinity. But you talk about mm. the promise of pleasure turns out to be just a glass of water. Yes. Can you explain what you mean by that sentiment and people's underlying yearnings and cravings and what porn consumption says about that? Porn, like many other objects in our world, it's promising something, but it's not maintaining it at all. There is this promise of excitement and lust and uh, uh, openness and uh, fun. But then it turns out to be a very, very limited experience. If we think concretely about experiencing a porn clip while masturbating, what you see can be exciting and you can be like uh, aroused, uh, yearning for satisfaction and actually browsing maybe more and more clips because there is, there is a lot of this element. Uh, uh, the addictive element seems to be very much the compelling sensation that you need to search and search and search again. You know, you, you need, you, um, what I said in the book is like the, that the best may be the next video girl or whatever so and there is this adrenalinic surge which is probably also neurobiologically uh, yeah. very important element of the addiction in it anyway there's this big promise of a lot of things and then in the end you come you're there sitting in front of a screen in your room <laughs> you haven't met anyone in real there was nothing real embodied of that experience until the next time you have uh, enough desire to start the process again. But to look at it from our side, it's pretty sad. It's a surrogate of that uh, promise of uh, fun and desire and lust and whatever. But that can be the case with many things. Not only in porn, unfortunately, I think, especially if we experience the world through images, like we said before, we never embody experiences. I think one of the effects of technology in general is uh, to dissociate a bit from the body experience. It's, it's, it's harder to be really satisfied mm. on a deeper level. That kind of metaphor I used was just a way to describe how big the discrepancy is between what is promised and what is obtained in the end. Yeah. I think it's it's an it's an interesting idea because this idea around porn sort of being a surrogate for some of sort of our deeper desires and wants. I mean obviously people are fairly unconscious of that when they're sort of just sitting at home scrolling through the internet, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So with that, can you take us through your hypothesis that you propose in the book around the relationship between sex and divinity, or I suppose I should say the breakdown in re the relationship between those two things and what you kind of propose. Yes. The final part of the book is dedicated to this topic of uh, porn and the sacred, which can, can sound very weird uh, to be <laughs> put together in the same sentence. sentence. Mm. Well, obviously, Sex and religion has a, a very ancient history of being uh, entwined, yeah. especially in uh, 
um, polytheistic religions uh, previous uh, to monotheistic ones. So, but porn and sacred uh, seems kind of a uh, ambitious project to be put together. But I, that was my hypothesis because I was, uh, uh, I mean, starting from what we said uh, until now, that in porn we can detect a lot elements on individual level, on collective level. Uh, and starting from the, the fact that psychoanalytic uh, writings about porn were always underlining the pathological sides of it, I was not very happy with the emergent picture because it is as if to say that uh, we are all, to some extent, immature and sick and uh, not developed uh, and... Uh, it seems to me difficult to think that uh, the reason for the widespread uh, fascination for porn all around the world would be rooted in some pathological aspect of our psyche. I thought there could have been more there. So my hypothesis uh, uh, is that uh, porn uh, reveals something on, a, on an unconscious level about our current uh, way of being in the world. And I started with uh, with this uh, what seemed to me the core element of porn in general, which is that women are moving on a spectrum. Uh, porn women, I mean, sorry, women in porn are moving on a spectrum towards more demanding and no limit performances, to the point that they move towards a place that I called the, the non differentiating where what is good and what is bad uh, are uh, the same. So there are no differences between what I like and what I don't like, what I enjoy, what I dislike. This is actually what is required to porn actresses because they have to perform an as-if performance. So they probably endure unpleasant uh, and painful uh, practices for quite a time but they have to perform as if they were wonderful. This is another element that differentiates men and women in porn, in my opinion, because men don't have to perform an as-if pleasure. Uh, what they do is most likely pleasurable. But women, they have to do it, and they have to dissociate from their body experience in order to perform an as-if pleasure. This can be uh, accounting for the, the heavy criticism uh, to porn from the side of anti-porn feminist writers, because mm. this is the really unfair element in porn, where women are definitely enduring something unpleasant and painful for the sake of a performance. Nevertheless, my hypothesis was that uh, by doing this, unawarely, we enter a territory, this territory of the non-differentiated, which has been always being very contiguous to the sacred. Mm. Because what is not differentiated, what is uh, beyond good and evil, what is beyond the human categories, has always been placed in the realm of the gods. Mm. It seems to me that uh, uh, without any awareness by poor companies or even actors and actresses and and even the spectators, mm. there is something 
in the porn performance that hints at the non-differentiated and hints at something that in previous eras would have been put in relation with the sacred. But if this is true, then we can think that uh, uh, one element of fascination for porn is that at a very unconscious level, it hints at something which is very much missing in our current world, uh, which is the transcendent and the sacred element. Uh, being in a technological and consumeristic society, we are not anymore contained by any of the previous frames that used to contain the human beings, Myth mythical frames, then religious frames, and then philosophical frames. Yeah. We, it seems that the, the evolution, let's say, of the spirit, if we want to call it like that, through, through centuries and millennia, brought us to the point where all these previous frames faded. And when Nietzsche was stating that God is dead, was simply detecting this element that mm. we were not anymore contained by any metaphysical frame. So the word then became desacralized without any sacred element, without any transcendence. It's only matter, mat materiality. It's only concrete. And technology needs that because then technology can transform the material. And, uh, but human beings, they always needed to be contained into something that was giving meaning. Mm. Because technology doesn't give meaning. Technology just functions. There's not any higher meaning in it. It has to function. So if we are, uh, since some decades, or at least maybe since the, the Industrial Revolution, entering this desacralized world that doesn't offer any more, any bigger meaning, well, then uh, we have a problem. And uh, there might be a big need, a higher need of some frame of meaning, but mm. this world doesn't offer it openly. Of course, we can still uh, look at religions or new religions, or new age or other elements. I mean, these are also other forms of this quest for meaning. If we think that we are in, a, in, in this postmodern world where there are no anymore, not any more absolute truth, and there is not anymore any frame of meaning that gives us a direction. We are in a situation of, uh, when I said we are, we are in problems, we are in a situation where we are basically uh, metaphysically naked, to quote this uh, author. It's not mine. Uh, this this uh, expression is from this Wolfgang Gigerich. We are metaphysically naked and we are looking for some new dress. Uh, and it's a very challenging and demanding task that we all have. So if it's true that in porn there is some hint, very unconscious hint to the sacred and the divine, maybe uh, part of the big fascination for that could be a kind of unconscious nostalgia for something dealing with the sacred because we are in a decircularized world. Uh, even if I could be religious myself, but the world is decircularized anyway. What surrounds me is, is without uh, these uh, metaphysical frames anyway. So 
that was my hypothesis because I see a very close link between sexuality and uh, religion in, in, in past eras. There is a big uh, connection, in my opinion, between this non-differentiated that women tend to imporn, where everything is wonderful, although it's not. So these hints to elements that were connected with the sacred allowed me to say that maybe there is an unconscious nostalgia for the sacred uh, nested into this interesting poem. Not only in the interest, because actually the sacred always evoked very polarized emotions, fascination and terror. In front of the gods, we can imagine ourselves caught into these two very different feelings. Like we are fascinated and uh, but also terrified. And this is also important. I mean, people get polarized very much. Some people are very fascinated. Some people are horrified by it. Uh, sex always evokes the same couple of opposites. The hypothesis was this, and uh, I tried to give some substance to it with the, some examples in the book, uh, some connections with the sacredness. I refer to sacred prostitution, which was something typical of uh, Middle East Five thousand old societies, uh, which went on for some centuries there. So whether we're goddesses uh, with priestesses, and uh, there were temples where these priestesses were kind of sacred prostitutes for the strangers who were passing there. And uh, there's a book about it, and that was interesting to me mm. about sacred prostitution. And I tried to link this to. Porn. Porn can be basically the desacralized, consumeristic, non-symbolic surrogate of what mm. in other eras might have been something connected with the sacred. Mm. It's an interesting idea to me because obviously most people would think of porn as something that is meaningless or doesn't really represent all of that much. That's sort of what you would hear. But I mean, I think it's pretty loaded, right? And it's, you have to question why is it women typically that are the ones that take on this role? And obviously patriarchy is part of that. But I think what's interesting about your argument is that it proposes this other element, this idea of sort of the the lost goddess and our disconnection to the feminine and, and things like that. I found this interesting to read as a woman, it's almost like kind of hard to stomach <laughs> in a sense. Like it, it doesn't feel great from a feminist standpoint. So I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit about if we're willing to take your hypothesis as, as true, what do we then do with that? How do we respond to it? This is a very, very interesting question and a very difficult topic. Yes. Um, <laughs> I know that there has been uh, a very high risk to see the feminine linked with the divine from a very much patriarchal perspective. Actually, in Jung, in Jung's, uh, in post-Jungian's books, you can find uh, some literature about uh, goddesses and what goddesses are in the feminine psyche. But this has been criticized. Uh, by feminist thinkers, by some feminist thinkers, and I agree with that, with the, with the criticism. So I hope that my hypothesis doesn't fall in the same basket mm. of uh, previous ways to uh, 
to banalize this topic. And I perfectly understand how you as a woman, you can feel unsettled and um, by this kind of uh, thinking that there is some connection between the feminine and the divine. This has always been told within a patriarchal frame. I agree with that. Since we are in a patriarchal still, um, unfortunately, we're still in a and there is still a big need for feminism to proceed uh, in dismantling and uh, unbuild this uh, frame. I think that also my hypothesis can uh, be taken into this uh, goal of dismantling something, because as you detected in reading the book, I'm super critical of patriarchal frames. Mm. I think that a porn actor reading my book would be offended. I define him as an idiot and, uh, <laughs> you know, performing the patriarchal antiques and stuff like that. I'm very critical here with patriarchy. And uh, my hypothesis within a patriarchal frame explains why, or tries to explain, to explain why there is a fascination for porn, because porn performs in the very center of the scene the feminine, Mm. which has been repressed in patriarchal fra uh, frame for millennia. And it gives a, a very central place to that. The feminine is able to enter the territory of the undifferentiated even, and it goes into the divine realm. Mm. Fantastic. At the same time, maybe right because of this, there is an enormous attempt to devaluate the feminine within poor and even within the general collective mentality around poor. Mm. So my hypothesis tries to account for the fascination. There is a hint of something missing in our world, the sacred. Plus, there is represented the, the divinity of the feminine, which is something that the patriarchal society actually tries to destroy. If we understand this, we should not stop here. Like I said before, this could be just the starting point of some transformation. What should be dismantled after this would be, once again, the patriarchal frame. So uh, the fact that we understand through porn that we miss the sacred, or it reveals that we have a nostal nostalgia for something transcendent, invites us metaphysically naked to look for new dresses, first of all. Secondly, this uh, paradox where the feminine is the very center and almost divine center of porn, and then there is the need to devaluate it and to destroy it, well, we should do something different with this. Let's acknowledge the divinity of the feminine, and by the way, maybe also of the masculine, if it's not the patriarchal masculine, masculinity, because that's far from being divine. And then after that, like in a, in a, in a post porn plays. Let's do something than all this. If we understand that there is a, a divinity of the feminine represented in porn, then let's not destroy it. Let's actually take it and expand it. Let's see how this will change even our way to relate with the feminine. I speak as a man. Let's find other ways to relate to it. If my hypothesis in itself is maybe not very nice for a feminist perspective now, because it is very unsatisfactory to think that uh, feminine is divine, and then what? In porn, is so much devaluated and 
and diminished. What's the what's here? Uh, obviously, if I was a woman, I would get rid of this fem- of this uh, sacrality and divinity. If then the result is this abuse of me. Mm. But if we acknowledge this as a fact, and we try with starting from this to do something totally different, then maybe it can be more promising as a, as a, as a first step. But I really thank you for your question because I never focused on this element myself. Mm. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I've said this before. I usually like to leave the episode on a hopeful, positive note with an idea of where we might be able to go. So I think that's a good good place for us to to wrap up. Obviously, there's a huge amount more we could unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to The Philosophy of Sex. And a huge thank you to Giorgio. You can head to the show notes for more information about Giorgio's work and his book, The Lost Goddesses, A Kaleidoscope on Porn. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fecho for editing the episode and writing the music. If you like what you're hearing or have a question, please leave us a review or email us at info at becoming.me. Becoming spelt with a U. Don't forget to subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes.